0: Remember, not mine! <laughs> now I have a machine gun. Ho, 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 A security guard we missed? Usually tired of policemen very fat on a pension. No, no, no. This is something else was hab ich gehört was hab ich gehört da sagt i feel thats as sieht haltet sie zurück in a world where the movies, we need a hero someone to separate the bad from the good Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 235, Die Hard. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always, welcome to Verbal Diorama. Whether you are a brand new listener to this podcast, whether you are a regular returning listener to this podcast, thank you for being here, thank you for choosing to listen to this podcast. I am, as always, absolutely delighted to have you here for the history and legacy of Die Hard. This is the penultimate episode of this podcast in the year 2023. So there is only one more episode left to go before the end of the year. And I will be taking a well-earned little bit of time off. I realise I had a little bit of time off at the start of December, but I had the flu. So I am going to be taking a little bit of time off over Christmas and returning in the new year with, of course, nomination Season 2024. And as always... Huge thanks to everyone who listens to this podcast on the regular and who's listened to the most recent episodes of this podcast on Street Fighter, which I am going to also mention a little bit later on in this podcast as well, and The Holiday. Let it be said, The Verbal Diorama only covers one type of movie because those two are about as polar opposite as you can get. And The Holiday obviously started our slightly more festive season on the podcast and that festivity continues because we're going to be talking about Die Hard, a movie that changed the modern action blockbuster and the modern action hero. But is it a Christmas movie? The answer to that is yes, but not why you might think. Welcome to the party, pals. Here's the trailer for Die Hard. It snow, it snow, it it's Christmas Eve in LA, California. It's- Well, we'll see what Santa and Mommy can do, okay? A New York cop, John McLean, has come to see his wife. Instead, he's going to have to save her. Sit down. Within this skyscraper high above the city, twelve terrorists have declared war. They are about to be told a lesson in the real use of power. They're as brilliant because I am. Stood in the $640 million in your vault. As they are ruthless. But I'm telling you, you're just gonna have to kill. Me. Okay. We do it the hard way. Now, the last thing McLean wants. Thank, damn it, think. is to be a hero. Where's Tucker! Where? But he doesn't have a choice. What does he think he's doing? <laughs> God. I've already killed one hostage. This channel is reserved for emergency calls only. Lady, sound like I've a pizza. He's inside? Who is he? Who are you then? You are most troublesome for a security guard. Yeah. Sorry, wrong guess, huh? Would you like to go to double jeopardy? Do you really think you have a chance against our sadistic cowboy? And I am in charge of this situation. Well, I got some bad news for you. From up here, that looks like you're in charge of Jack. He is alone, he is tired, and he hasn't seen Disney squad from anybody down here. <laughs> can drive somebody that crazy he's an easy guy to like come out to the coast we'll get together have a few laughs and a hard man to kill bruce willis die hard got invited to the christmas party by mistake who knew nypd detective John McLean is invited to Los Angeles to his estranged wife Holly's office Christmas party at the Nakatomi Corporation, where she is second in command and referred to as Ms. Gennaro and not Mrs. McLean. As John and Holly bicker, terrorists infiltrate the Nakatomi building and hold the company's employees hostage in order to steal $640 million in untraceable bearer bonds. John manages to escape the commotion and as the terrorists attempt to break into the vault, John starts to affect their operation by killing terrorists and alerting the police and this leads to a standoff with the head terrorist Hans Gruber a man who's cool calm and collected except when his plans are being thwarted let's run through the cast of this movie we have Bruce Willis as John McClane Alan Rickman as Hans Gruber Bonnie Bedelia as Holly Gennaro McClane Reginald Zell Johnson as Al Powell Paul Gleason as Dwayne T. Robinson, Alexander Gudenoff as Carl, Devoye White as Argyle. It looks like it's written Devereux, but it's not. It's DeVoyer. William Atherton as Richard Thornburg, Clarence Gilliard Jr. as Theo, Hart Bochner as Harry Ellis and James Shigeta as Joseph Takagi. Die Hard has a screenplay by Jeb Stewart and Stephen E. D'Souza was directed by John McTiernan and based on Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick Thorpe. Now, the story of Die Hard doesn't start in the excesses of the 80s, but goes back over 20 years to 1966. And Roderick Thorpe's 1966 novel The Detective about private (laughs) detective Joe Leland and a case involving the recently widowed Norma McIver and her deceased husband Colin's involvement in a murder. It was made into a movie in 1968, starring Frank Sinatra as Joe Leland and co-starred Lee Remick, Jacqueline Bissett and Robert Duvall. It was billed as more adult detective noir drama and Sinatra was praised for his intense performance. The detective was a box office success and, as with any box office success, a sequel is bound to be forthcoming. But it would take 11 years for Thorpe to write the novel sequel, Nothing Lasts Forever, this time focusing on retired detective Joe Leland visiting his daughter Stephanie at her company's Christmas party as terrorists take over the building. The idea formed from a dream he'd had after seeing the 1974 disaster film The Towering Inferno. Most importantly for this story, though, the film rights to a sequel to The Detective had already been purchased by Fox, meaning that a film adaptation of Nothing Lasts Forever was almost certain, except it also kind of wasn't. Hence why it was never made in 1979 when the book was published. Fast forward to 1986, an up-and-coming screenwriter Jeb Stewart had a full picture deal at Disney in addition to a project at Columbia, but he still didn't have enough money coming in from either to support his wife and two children. His agent Jeremy Zimmer connected him with 20th Century Fox producer Lloyd Levin, who hired Stewart to adapt Thorpe's novel Nothing Lasts Forever, giving him a six-week window of availability to work on the script. While Stewart enjoyed Thorpe's book, he felt it was too depressing to be faithfully adapted into a Hollywood film. He battled to understand the story in the few weeks he had left to complete the draft, trying to balance Thorpe's visceral nihilism with the requirements of a summer blockbuster. It was a challenging time for Stuart and his marriage. He was burning the candle at both ends and his time with his wife and kids was fleeting. He and his wife had a blazing argument one evening which culminated in Stewart storming out of the house, jumping in his car and driving down an LA Freeway fully realizing he was in the wrong. But then, as fate would have it, he noticed cars ahead of him swerving out of the way of an obstacle in the road. It was a huge cardboard box with a photo of a fridge on the outside. Before he knew it, he hit the box at 65 miles per hour. Thankfully, the box was empty, but the experience was enough to shake him to his core and make him realize that life was short, that anything could happen at any moment, and all he wanted to do in that instant was apologise to his wife and see her again. At that moment, he realised that Nothing Lasts Forever's hero had to be estranged from his wife, and as terrorists seize the building, the hero only wants to save his wife and tell her he's sorry. That night, Stuart typed up 30 pages, and ironically was so caught up in the moment of writing the draft, he forgot to actually call his wife and apologise. The movie was never written as an action film, just a personal story about a reconciliation between a husband and wife, including marital issues that his friends were going through at the time. Things like separation, living apart, impending divorce, and ex-wives reverting to their maiden names. It was also Stuart who decided to carry a Western motif through the script and include cowboy lingo. Together with Lloyd Levin, he adapted sequences from the book faithfully, including C4 being thrown down a lift shaft and the central character leaping from the roof, both of which appear in the final film. It was the second revised draft which included Yippee-Yay-Yay, not yippee Kaye, and no MFA on the end. The original novel was quite dour and depressing, ending on the death of the bad guy Anton Little Tony Gruber, but also on the death of Joe Leland's daughter Stephanie as Gruber falls to his death in the Claxon Oil Building and grabs her and pulls her down with him. It's hardly the feel-good Christmas movie that we know. No one wants to see the hero's daughter die at the end. And it was one of the main reasons the movie was never made for years after the novel was written. It's bleak and occasionally cruel, but the version of Die Hard we got was remarkably similar, including the hero having bare feet throughout, making fists with your toes, Maclean recognising Gruber immediately, and most of the secondary characters, including Al Powell, Ellis and Dwayne Robinson. Jeb Stewart was granted creative freedom by Lloyd Levin, provided he kept the Los Angeles Christmas setting, because he thought the idea would make for an intriguing visual. And the idea boiled down to Rambo in an office building, which has a delicious sense of irony when you realise Die Hard's legacy stems from copycat movies that are basically Die Hard on a Cliff or Die Hard on a Boat. Paul Verhoeven turned the director's job down. And director John McTiernan was brought on by producers Lawrence Gordon and Joel Silver after they worked together on the hit movie Predator in 1987. McTiernan declined the job several times but accepted after negotiating the tone with Joel Silver. He didn't like terrorists and he didn't want to direct a movie about terrorists so he suggested they made the group a band of thieves instead and also bring some joy to proceedings in the movie. Jeb Stewart delivered the finished screenplay in June 1987. It was greenlit the following day in part because 20th Century Fox needed a summer blockbuster for 1988. And because Nothing Lasts Forever was the sequel to The Detective, the studio was obligated to offer the role of the Joe Leland character once again to Frank Sinatra, who by this point was 70 years old. Thankfully, Sinatra declined, and the character's name was changed to John McClane. The name Die Hard came from Joel Silver, but it was actually Shane Black who put the idea in Silver's head. Die Hard was the original title of The Last Boy Scout, another movie Willis would go on to star in, one of the many Die Hard-esque clones in the following years. But the script for Die Hard wasn't quite right and Steven D'Souza was brought in for rewrites. The same Steven D'Souza who directed Street Fighter from a couple of episodes ago and stunt coordinator Charlie Piscerni also shows up in Die Hard 2, also from Street Fighter, that relationship having soured somewhat since their work on Die Hard. Have a listen to the Street Fighter episode for more on that. And all of this was happening before any actors were even considered. Lawrence Gordon utilised the studio system approach, having the screenplay ready to go, getting the go-ahead for the film, selecting the director and only then casting the picture. Nowadays, big-name actors have the power to vet directors and often have producer credits too. But Lawrence Gordon believed that the producer should have the authority to choose his director and he didn't want the star to have that power. And the list of people they approached to play the newly named John McClane was a who's who of Hollywood in the 80s. They went to Arnold Schwarzenegger, who turned it down. They went to Sylvester Stallone, who turned it down. They went to Richard Gere, who turned it down. They went to James Cairn, who turned it down. They went to Burt Reynolds, Harrison Ford, Al Pacino, Clint Eastwood. And all of these people rejected it. Because in 1987, Hollywood had had several years of macho, Big, muscled, manly man heroes in Rambo, Commando and the aforementioned Predator. And in the wake of all of these, John McClane was not seen as a hero. He was more of an everyman and no one wanted to play an everyman character. After every viable actor in Hollywood turned down the role, they were pretty desperate by this point. So desperate that they'd offer it to a comedic TV actor known for a series called Moonlighting. And even then, Bruce Willis declined the role originally due to his contractual obligations to Moonlighting. But when his co-star Sybil Shepard fell pregnant, production on the show was halted to accommodate her pregnancy. And Willis's agent Arnold Rifkin, who'd also got him his movie debut in 1987's Blind Date, which was a bit of a critical failure, received a script for a movie called Die Hard and thought the title they'd chosen for the movie sounded like a battery commercial. For Rifkin, it was a risky move for his client to take the movie and that a failure would see the end of Willis's movie career even before it had started. And he wanted some form of justification that if it didn't work, at least Willis would be compensated. So he offered his client Bruce Willis to the die-hard producers and to 20th Century Fox for $5 million. Yep, an unknown actor asking for $5 million. Fox would come back and counter-offer $2.5 then $3 million. but each time Rifkin and Willis would pass. They figured they had nothing to lose by asking for $5 million. Fox's chief negotiator, Leon Brackman, rather astonishingly granted the deal, which then had a ripple effect in Hollywood. Because if an unknown TV actor could get $5 million for an action movie, every big-name actor could suddenly ask for more money. They could get $10 million. They could get $15 million. Maybe they could even get $20 million it would lead to Arnold Rifkin receiving a backlash from the industry. But all he was doing was working for his client to get him the best deal. And his percentage, of course. Because for $5 million, it didn't matter if Die Hard was a hit or not, Bruce Willis would walk away OK. And Willis had his own ideas for the character of John McClane. He wanted to play him sincerely and honestly, that even an NYPD detective would be afraid at that moment, but also wanted to show that even masculine men can be vulnerable. And it's that vulnerability that made Die Hard stand out from the action movie crowd. While later movies show McLean as an invincible hero, Die Hard gave us a normal guy, foiling the plans of a group of thieves, being self-referential and showing his humour and his humanity. Technically, John was the antagonist of the story and Hans the protagonist, and even Souza admits he rewrote the script in that exact fashion. No one really gives Bruce Willis the credit for changing how Hollywood not only saw action heroes, but how those actors playing those heroes would be compensated. And you could argue that the idea of being paid $4 million or $5 million is moot to the layman, who'd happily live off that for life, it would essentially lead to the huge paydays that we see actors get today. So you have an unknown lead. And then the next most important character to cast was Hans Gruber. At the time, Alan Rickman was a veteran of the stage, graduating from London's prestigious Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in 1974 before joining the Royal Shakespeare Company. His Broadway performance as Vicomte de Valmont in Les Liaisons de Jure got him a Tony Award nomination in 1987 and it was that exact performance that caught the eye of Joel Silver. Silver offered the role of Hans Gruber to Rickman who, unsurprisingly for this story, turned it down, not wanting to do a Hollywood action movie. It was his agent, along with various other people he spoke to, who suggested he reconsider. He was 40 years old at the time, had never acted in Hollywood before, and was being offered one of the most iconic villain roles in cinema history, although no one knew it at the time. Despite his status in the industry as a rookie, Rickman wasn't afraid to voice his opinions on the character he was playing, despite the ire of Joel Silver. It was Rickman who insisted on Gruber's stylish suits, as opposed to his comrade's tr- suits, and his cool, calm demeanour. It was Rickman who suggested on Gruber faking an American accent to fool MacLean into thinking he was a hostage, after they realised that Gruber and MacLean had never met face-to-face, and the fact they did was solve one of the several script dilemmas during filming, because as I'm going to come to, the script was basically made up as they went along. The rest of the cast came together quickly, with Bonnie Bedelia cast on the advice of Willis after he saw her in Heart Like a Wheel. She's Macaulay Culkin's aunt a pin in that little nugget of information. Casting director Jackie Birch had worked with Reginald Bell Johnson before. Hart Bochner's father Lloyd Bochner played Dr Roberts in The Detective alongside Frank Sinatra. So that was a nice little turn of fate for his son to be in the movie version of the sequel to that story. And it was Bochner's idea to have the character's motivations come from his copious amounts of snorting coke. In Jeb Stuart's original script, the action took place over three days, but John McTiernan wanted it to take place over a single night. Stephen D'Souza had been hired to rewrite the script and inject more humour, and these changes would continue even after filming commenced in November 1987. D'Souza visited the newly built 710,000 square foot Box Plaza building, and it was seen as the ideal place to film because A. it was still under construction on several floors, and B, it'd be free to use, as it was on the Fox studio lot. It was agreed to film at Fox Plaza under two conditions. No filming during the day, which also helped because the action takes place over one night, and no damage from any explosions. The building's design, being so distinct, made it a memorable character in its own right. Even now, formerly known as Fox Plaza and instead known as 2121 Avenue of the Stars, it's still referred to by pretty much everyone as the Nakatomi Plaza. It was also featured in the movies Airheads and Fight Club and, of course, on the TV show Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And the ongoing nature of the script writing is evident, with things like the ambulance being retrieved from the van at the end of the movie, but it isn't in the van at the start, and this is an error acknowledged by the filmmakers. The ad hoc scripting also led to Winnis ad-libbing many of his famous lines, including yippee ki Well, his first scene shot was the rooftop jump with fire hose, a stunt he would do himself. And despite the no damage rule, real explosions were done on the roof of the Fox Plaza. A scene that the city only permitted two hours of helicopter usage to film. 24 cameras filmed simultaneously in only two and a half takes. Actual rocket launchers were fired. A real SWAT truck was blown up. And the glass shattering on the building, also real. So much for no damage. Whoopsie. Miniature helicopters were also used to show the FBI guy's helicopter exploding into a fireball, mostly because they really couldn't blow up the real roof of the real Fox Plaza. Mostly everything was shot on location at Fox Plaza, with items in the building utilised in off-the-cuff scenes written the night before. Cinematographer Jan de Bont used handheld cameras to make the action more personal, to show in the third person and to show McLean's point of view. McTiernan didn't storyboard the movie and both he and de Bont worked closely together to plan the setups and camera angles. With it being a real office building and offices usually using fluorescent lights in the ceiling, Jan de Bont realised that this made every room look the same. So what de Bont did was he used hidden ceiling pockets to hide film lights on digital dimmers so he could set levels and create darkness and bright spots wherever he wanted them to be. He wanted to avoid the boring generic white light where every room looks the same And the fluorescent lighting, which they'd removed, could just lie on the floor in the frame as if it was just there to be installed because the building was still unfinished at that time. The production had originally six weeks of filming with an additional two weeks and pretty much everything was on the fly, with Willis working on Moonlighting by day and Die Hard by night, working around script issues, location issues, design issues, and the issue of giving Bruce Willis rest D'Souza was tasked to find stuff for other characters to do. So he beefed up roles in the script for Argyle, Powell, Ellis, and Holly's housekeeper, which led to the altercation with the newscaster. It was never done to build any other character development, just literally to give Bruce Willis time off. But it led to the movie valuing those secondary characters. The idea being shoot as much as you can, including the stuff that you know is going to be cut by editors or the MPAA, because it was better to film it than to not film it. Joel Silver thought the original Nakatomi logo looked like a swastika, so production designer Jackson DeGovia redesigned it based around a samurai warrior helmet. Two to three weeks into filming, they came up with a scene where John McClane pulls glass out of his feet in the bathroom, wincing in pain. Willis had Reginald Val Johnson in the scene with him behind the camera and spoke the lines directly to Val Johnson. At all of the times, Val Johnson did his lines with the script girl and never with Willis directly, but it worked to show the vulnerability of McLean and the closeness of his relationship with Al Powell in that moment. And while the vast majority of the movie was filmed on location at Fox Plaza, some stuff did need to be done in studio, and it included cutting-edge miniatures of the Nakatomi Plaza and optical effects. And I mentioned Bruce Willis doing the majority of his own stunts, which he did, other than the full damn lift shaft that was a stuntman who actually missed the target, but they kept the shot as it looked more authentic. But Alan Rickman also famously did his own fall off the Nakatomi Plaza. And while the story of him going on one instead of go is very well known, as is the genuine terror on his face, what isn't is the technology behind his fall. So Rickman was to fall backwards onto a blue airbag, and then the effects team would superimpose the background later. But as he was falling backwards the camera wouldn't be able to keep him in focus. So they had to figure out what to do about that. So the effects team at Boss Film Studios, led by Richard Edmund, who I've mentioned before on this podcast very recently, actually, in the episode that I did on Poltergeist, they needed to film Rickman at very high speed. The stunt was shot at 270 frames per second, which resulted in footage that appeared more than 10 times slower than normal. The bigger challenge, though, was that the shot begins very close up on Rickman all the way, until he would have just hit the blue pillow. And it was a fall that needed to be in focus the whole time. So how did the camera operator manage to do it? Well, Boss Film Studios orchestrated a motorised electronic encoder system for the camera lens that was able to detect the change in focus. The operator looked through a pistol scope and followed Rickman's face with a red laser dot. That information was sent to a computer and the computer sent back the data to the motor on the focus ring of the lens which would hold the focus on Rickman as he fell, and Rickman would never be out of focus. The shot of Rickman was then composited with a shot of the base of the Nakatomi Plaza, as well as stock certificates flying out of the window, which were actually little stamp-sized pieces of paper. The final part of Gruber's fall is a separate shot of the character seen falling down the entire length of the building, and this was obviously achieved with a stuntman dressed like Rickman, falling with a special decelerator wire rig that can't be seen on camera. It is the sort of shot that remains timeless and iconic 35 years later because of how real it still feels. And it is something that you simply cannot encapsulate with CG. One of the few studio sets was the 30th floor of the Nakatomi building, where the hostages are being held. It included a replica of falling water, a home designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, According to Degovia, it was a reflection of the current practice of Japanese businesses acquiring corporate assets in the US. A 120-metre-long matte painting depicting the cityscape, as seen from the 30th floor of the building, used various nighting techniques, including animated nights, to depict both daytime and nighttime traffic. The painting was so detailed, it was reused for future films. And speaking of future films, let's move on to the obligatory Keanu reference of this episode. This is a part of the podcast where I link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves for no reason other than he is the best of men. And all men, if you're not going to be like John McClane, you should be like Keanu Reeves. And really, how can I not mention Die Hard on a Bus? Because that is basically the concept of Speed. It is Die Hard on a Bus. That's not to belittle Speed because it is a movie that I simply adore with all my heart. But obviously Speed was also directed by Jan de Bont, the cinematographer for Die Hard. And genuinely, it is one of Keanu's best roles, so it just makes complete sense to mention Speed when you're talking about Die Hard. Die Hard is a movie full of memorable things, but one of the most memorable things is probably the music. John McTiernan always wanted to use Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, also known as Ode to Joy, after A Clockwork Orange used it to highlight the violence. Composer Michael Kamen insisted on licensing Singing in the Rain and Winter Wonderland so he could underscore the villains. to Joy is intentionally played in a lower key to sound more menacing. Kamen's score also uses the classical piece of Brandenburg Concerto No. 3 by Johann Sebastian Bach, along with film score cues including James Horner's A New Score for Aliens and the more contemporary Christmas in Hollis by Run DMC. After the filming was complete for Die Hard, the motions were sent for it to be released. But 20th Century Fox had very little confidence in Die Hard, especially after trailers were released and people were reportedly laughing at moonlighting actor Bruce Willis starring in an action movie. Posters for the film that featured Willis were amended to focus only on the building, with Fox marketing executives claiming it was nothing to do with Willis's popularity but that the building was an important character in the movie. Once the movie was released and the reviews were positive, Willis's face miraculously peered back onto the posters and his name was once again prominently shown. Die Hard had a limited release in 21 theatres in the US, starting on the 15th of July 1988. Yep, a Christmas movie being released in the middle of summer. The following week, it opened wide to over 1,200 theatres and landed at number three at the box office, Behind Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Coming to America, Die Hard was such a continued success that it remained in the top five in the US box office for 11 weeks, only dropping out of the top 10 in its 15th week of release. And on its $28 million budget, it would gross $83 million domestically in the US and $57.7 million internationally for a total worldwide gross of $140.7 million, making it the 10th highest grossing film in North America it defied all financial expectation and all critical expectations too. Because while initial critical reviews were mixed, retrospectively, it's seen as one of the finest action movies ever made and one of the greatest Christmas movies ever made. McTiernan's direction was praised alongside DeBont's cinematography and while critics were mixed on Bruce Willis, the character of John McClane was mostly seen as a genre-defining hero, one who displays remorse, fear and indecision without being overly macho or comedic. Die Hard is easily one of the most influential films in the action genre, whose impact can still be seen in contemporary films. In 2017, Die Hard was selected by the United States Library of Congress to be preserved in the National Film Registry for being culturally, historically or aesthetically significant. Unlike most action films of its era, Die Hard was nominated for four Oscars. Best Film Editing, Best Visual Effects, Best Sound Effects Editing and Best Sound. It would lose to Who Framed Roger Rabbit for the first three and Bird for Best Sound. No shame, though, to lose to Roger. When it came to its home video release, it, excuse the pun, blew up and spent six of its first seven weeks at number one in the rentals charts, making an estimated $36 million just from home rentals. And obviously, Die Hard is a movie that was very popular, as so the sequel, Die Hard 2, was rushed into production to capitalise on the success of Die Hard, with Bruce Willis, Bonnie Bedelia, William Atherton and Reginald Bell Johnson returning. It was based on Walter Wagner's 1987 novel, 58 Minutes, and was again written by Stephen D'Souza, along with Doug Richardson, and directed by Rennie Harlan after John McTiernan declined to return. It doubled the earnings of its predecessor, Die Hard with a Vengeance was again directed by McTiernan and was based on the screenplay Simon Says by Jonathan Hensley, which was originally going to be a Lethal Weapon sequel. The Simon being Hans Gruber's brother and McLean being partnered by Samuel L. Jackson's Zeus Carver and is widely considered to be the best of all of the Die Hard sequels. Die Hard 4.0 or Live Free and Die Hard was based on the 1997 article A Farewell to Arms written by John Carlin for Wired magazine. Directed by Len Wiseman, it would be the highest grossing instalment of the franchise, but the only Die Hard to be rated PG-13. And the only Die Hard movie to not be based on existing material is A Good Day to Die Hard, which was meant to have a final sequel, which then became the prequel McLean. and after Disney acquired Fox in 2019, the project was cancelled. Willis reprised his role as John McLean for the final time in 2020, for an advertisement for the Die Hard car battery commercial. Willis later retired from acting in 2022 due to being diagnosed with aphasia. And I think it's only fair that the character of John McClane is also similarly retired because he is one of those characters that could only ever be played by one person, and that person is Bruce Willis. I asked at the start of this episode, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? And I said, well, yes, it is. Die Hard is a Christmas movie, not just because it's set at Christmas. Not just the fact it has Christmas music and includes a Christmas party. It's a Christmas movie because it invokes all the traditional themes of Christmas movies. Themes of redemption, family, saving the day and reconciliation with loved ones. If you think of the greatest Christmas movies of all time, movies like The Muppet Christmas Carol, It's a Wonderful Life, Miracle on 34th Street, Klaus, even Krampus and Home Alone all contain those themes. And that's what makes this a perennial Christmas classic. It's also a deft personal drama with a warring husband and wife and a husband who doesn't know how to deal with a successful wife. A wife called Holly. Because Christmas. Now I know there are naysayers out there who genuinely don't see Die Hard as a Christmas movie. And I know there are plenty of people out there who do see Die Hard as a Christmas movie. And to be honest, it doesn't matter. Because Die Hard is a great movie, regardless whether you think it's a Christmas movie or not. It's one of those movies that I don't think anyone dislikes. Because I feel like this movie genuinely has something for everyone. Big explosions, comedic moments, a menacing villain, quotable lines, memorable music, a heartfelt love story between John and Holly, a heartfelt love story between John and Al, a vulnerable action hero wearing no shoes and a vest that just gets dirtier and dirtier, as well as just generally embodying the spirit of the holiday season. And while Bruce Willis shines, it's Alan Rickman who really steals the show. And when they're together on screen, it feels like a real meeting of minds and charisma. Many films want to be this simple and elegant, but they all fail because they take from it the big action set pieces and stunts, and none of the heart, except for Speed, which is a true successor to Die Hard in many respects, including but not limited to the everyman hero, a memorable villain and the wonderful action set pieces. Bruce Willis was set the template and in many ways his recent aphasia diagnosis just hurts that little bit more looking back on what he gave cinema. I wish him the very best for his retirement. He will always be the thinking person's action hero, a man who feels deeply, a hothead who should just take the time to understand his wife and her needs. Something that I think many men, especially, can and should take from this movie Not necessarily your wife is always right, but your wife deserves your understanding and support with her career, with the kids. Don't leave it six months living apart before a catastrophe happens. Talk now. Die Hard might follow all the standard action tropes, but it also definitely creates its own. This is studio filmmaking done right, with the right creatives. A perfect storm of story and talent. And it is one of the greatest Christmas movies ever made yippee Kaye, yay mother Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Die Hard. And if you do want to get involved, you want to help this podcast grow, you can by telling your friends and family about this podcast. You can retweet or like posts on social media. You can find me at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Threads, Blue Sky and Letterboxd. And wherever you're listening to this podcast, if there is a facility to leave a rating or review, please do so. It helps other people find this podcast. Now, there's not really anything out there other than Die Hard, but I wanted to recommend some other Christmas classics that I've covered on this podcast. So, of course, I'm going to recommend movies that I've already mentioned in this episode. I'm going to recommend episode 131, Krampus, which obviously is a Christmas horror movie. But again, themes of family at Christmas. I love Krampus. I think it's a really fun movie. But if you want something a bit more family-friendly, I would recommend episode 132, Klaus. Klaus is a Netflix animated movie and it is simply magical. I can't wait to watch Klaus this year. It is just one of those beautifully animated, heartfelt Christmas movies. Again, all about family. I'm going to be watching it on Christmas Eve because it's become a bit of a tradition for me to watch Klaus on Christmas Eve. But the other movie that I like to watch every year at Christmas is episode 185 The Muppet Christmas Carol because Christmas is not Christmas without Die Hard or The Muppet Christmas Carol so make sure that this Christmas you at least watch Die Hard and The Muppet Christmas Carol and Klaus and maybe Krampus as well and that will be your Christmas done although you might want to watch the movie for the next episode as well as always give me feedback let me know what you think of the episodes that I recommend and the final episode before Christmas And one of the finest Christmas movies to have ever graced our screens. One that has links to Die Hard, thanks to Bonnie Bedelia. And if you were paying attention earlier, you all know exactly where I'm going. Because Home Alone is coming to Verbal Diorama. Like a lovely cheese pizza just for you. Join me next Sunday for the final episode of Verbal Diorama in 2023 on the history and legacy of Home Alone. That episode is coming out on Christmas Eve, which I know is generally a very busy time for everyone, but I wanted to get all of these episodes out before Christmas, so that's why they're going out on Sunday, and that's why Home Alone will be out on Christmas Eve. I hope that you will have time over the festive period to listen to that episode and to enjoy that episode, and Verbal Diorama will be taking a break after that over Christmas, and then we'll return in the new year with animation season. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for supporting this podcast in 2023. Just by listening, you are supporting this podcast. And just by sharing this podcast, you are supporting this podcast. If you do want to help financially and you have the means to, you can. You can go to verbaldiorama.com slash tips to give a one-off tip. Or you can go to verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon to join the amazing patrons of this podcast. Simon E., Sharday, Claudian, Simon B., Laurel, Derek, Verne, Kat, Andy, Mike, Luke, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Lisa, Sam, Jack, Dave, Stuart, Nicholas, So, Kev, Pete, Heather, Danny, Ali, Tyler, Stu, Brett, Philip and Michelle. You can email me if you wish, verbaldiorama at gmail.com. You can find my website, which is verbaldiorama.com. You can say hi, you can give me feedback, you can wish me a Merry Christmas or you can just give me suggestions if you want. You can also find my work at filmstories.co.uk. You can find issues of the magazine and also wonderful articles online too. And finally, you smoke? Yeah. (laughs) Thanks. You don't work. Nakatomi. And if you're not one of them. I'm a cop from New York. New York? Yeah. Got invited to the Christmas party by mistake. Who knew? Call your pants down, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I'm John McClain. You're uh Clay. Bill, Clay. Now to use a handgun, Bill. I a weekend at a combat ranch. You know that game with the guns that shoot red-pink? Probably seems kind of stupid to you. Well, time for the real thing, Bill. All you gotta do is pull the trigger. So Put on the 30th of the comes. Come so forth. Put down again and give me my detonators. Well, well, well. Hans. Put it down. tricky with that accent. You ought to be on TV with that accent. But what do you want with the detonators, Hans? I already used all the explosives. But did I? I going to count to three. Yeah. Like you did with Takagi. Oops. No bullets stupid hands you're saying bye